Luke, I certainly want to thank you for singing and ministering to us, uh, not only singing, but ministering to us with a new, uh, a whole new arrangement of amazing love. Thank you so much. And it really spoke to my heart, and I think it spoke to all of our hearts as well. Uh, I'd just like to say again a word of welcome to those of you who are visiting today. It's wonderful to have all of you here. And um, we're going to be looking at, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, Matthew's gospel today. Chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Before I read it, though, I just want to say a special word of uh, welcome and return to David Galetta, who just came back, our missionary who travels from here around the world, just got back from Pakistan yesterday. So uh, no, no, no jet lag there, David. Um, but uh, please accept our, our welcome back. We love you so much. Thank you. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, and I like to read verses 18 to 25. Now, I have to tell you that this series, Advent series, these next four weeks, are going to be based on the 31 verses in Matthew's Gospel that focus on Jesus' nativity, on Jesus' birth. So um, I'm reading the first of the five sections of those 31 verses, but my remarks today will encompass all They will encompass the entire 31 verses as we go through. Um, And so it'll be very important for you to have your Bibles open in front of you so that you can uh, follow along as we preach. Matthew 1, though, verses 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, in other words, they were committed uh, to marriage, had not had intercourse yet, but betrothal was much stronger than engagement in our culture. Once you were betrothed, you were absolutely bound to marry unless there was a divorce even before the marriage uh, uh, formally came together. So when his mother Mary um, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be a child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a, a just man, a man of the law, and unwilling to put her to shame at the same time. A just man, he was to divorce her, but he was unwilling to put her to shame, so he resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we love you and thank you for this passage of your word. And I ask you now to make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, like you, I, I love the Christmas story. I love the Christmas story and as it's illustrated in children's books, as it's sung about at Christmas, um, as, we, uh, as we'll hear it read to us uh, on Christmas Eve. I really do love 
the Christmas story. And I love all the music that it has inspired. I think the most beautiful music in the world is Christian music uh, and Christmas music. And I think it's very, not just, not only melodically, but also lyrically, I think it's the richest music in the world. You think with me about the Christmas story for a minute. You have, of course, Gabriel's announcement to Mary, right? That she's going to bear God's son. You have Caesar's call for a census. And you have the journey of Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem because of that call for a census. And then you have Jesus' birth that night in Bethlehem and the wonderful manger scene in a stable or a cave, but anyway, where there's livestock. You have the angel's announcement to the shepherds in the field at night announcing the good news. You have the heavenly chorus joining in the song. You have the shepherds visit to Jesus and, and their wonder at what's happening. And then eight days later, you have Jesus' presentation in the temple in Jerusalem for circumcision where he's welcomed and loved by old Anna and old Simeon. I mean, these are tidings of comfort and joy. There's good news here. This is about peace on earth and goodwill toward men. And based on this amazing account, we sing songs. We sing carols like Away in a Manger. Or we sing While Shepherds Watch Their Flocks. Or we sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing. We sing O Holy Night. We sing Come All Ye Faithful. But has it ever occurred to you that every one of these events associated with Jesus' birth is from Luke's telling of the story? And not one of them is from Matthew's telling the story. Matthew's story is comprised of five short cameos or scenes. Joseph's struggle over whether to divorce Mary, which I read this morning. The coming of the wise men to Jerusalem, which I'll return to in a moment. Joseph taking his family and fleeing to Egypt to save Jesus' life. King Herod's killing of all the young boys in Bethlehem who were about two years age of age or younger. Joseph leading his family back to Israel after Herod dies. And then settling in that obscure town of Nazareth in Galilee where Jesus can grow up and be safe away from Judah, away from Herod's then reigning son. We don't sing any Christmas carols about Joseph's struggle over whether to divorce Mary, do we? We don't sing any Christmas carols about Herod's Herod's attempt to deceive the wise men or slaughter the children of Bethlehem. I don't think we sing any Christmas carols. There may be one, I'm not sure, but I'm not aware of any that celebrate Joseph's fleeing with his family for Jesus' safety into Egypt. And the question there that this raises for us is what is Matthew's point? What is Matthew saying? We need to listen to him. Now, I want to answer that question with you today, but to answer it, I want to first, I need to make a couple parenthetical statements, if you don't mind, little sidebar comments. First, there is that one standard of the Christmas story, one standard scene of the Christmas story I did not mention that is drawn from Matthew, and that is the wise men's visit and their presentation of gifts to Jesus. But to do that, in the standard Christmas story that we all read and see illustrated, their story, the story of the wise men, is taken completely out of context from Matthew's telling, and it's simply put into the midst of the narrative of Luke's account. And so 
the Magi appear the same night that, uh, that the angels go to Bethlehem and see Jesus in the manger and they present their gifts to him. But it misses, that, that narrative really misses the timing of the Magi's visit actually by as much as two years and it leaves out entirely their fateful first stop in Jerusalem and their visit with the conniving king, Herod. Now, as I go over this with you, you know, you may be thinking, well, you know, Pastor, are you going to be a Grinch who tries to steal Christmas from us this year? And the answer is no, I, I don't intend to do that at all. But what I am trying to do is to underscore that Matthew's account of Jesus' birth is very different. And it's different for a good reason. And it's one we tend to overlook. Here's the second parenthetical comment I have to make. This is really important. That the particular events in Luke and in Matthew's accounts the events they chose to describe in relating Jesus' birth, they are quite different, but they are not contradictory. The two authors are emphasizing different events. But on six basic facts of Jesus' birth, they are in complete agreement. Both focus on a betrothed and not married couple, Mary and Joseph, on Joseph as the descendant of David, on Jesus' conception as the work of the Holy Spirit, without human intercourse, on the angel's revelation of Jesus' name, on Bethlehem as the birthplace of Jesus during the reign of Herod, and on his upbringing in Nazareth. So on the basic facts, they're completely in agreement. But on the events, they chose differently what to emphasize. And I know that for its joy and its charm and peace and comfort and joy, Luke's Luke's stories of Christmas receive far more public acclaim than Matthew's. History shows us that's true. But the Holy Spirit never intended Matthew's account of Christmas to play second fiddle. It's written to stand on its own. So those two parenthetical comments made, one about the wise men and one about the fact that they are all, both accounts are, are in agreement on the facts of Jesus' birth. What is Matthew's message? And what I want to suggest to you today as we look at this is that there are three common threads that are present in all five of those short cameos or sequences that Matthew relates to us. And the first thread in all five accounts is disaster, the possibility of disaster. The second is the necessity for some divine guidance at every point. And then the third is the fulfillment of God's word, the fulfillment of prophecy underscored uh, emphatically by Matthew. So I'll, let's go through these five cameos together and let's see how that's, how that's in fact the case. In the first cameo, Matthew 1, 18 to 25, disaster is averted. An angel of the Lord intervenes in the midst of Joseph's struggle over whether to divorce Mary. Can you imagine what it would have been like had Joseph rejected Mary as his wife? And had he let the child go, left the child, nameless? But he does marry her. And he does name the boy. Thus making Jesus his heir, essentially by adoption, a legal descendant of David. He bestows, instead, Joseph bestows on Jesus his rightful identity. And because he does, the prophecy is fulfilled from Isaiah 7:14. Behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son 
and they shall call his name Emmanuel. He will be seen as the divine son of God. Quoting Isaiah 14. Think about the second cameo, the second scene here. Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. Again, disaster is averted. Wise men from the east come to Jerusalem. They're looking for him who was born the king of the Jews. And for they'd seen his star when it rose. So they've come to Jerusalem to worship him. And, and Herod, when they speak with Herod, Herod, in fact, conniving as he is, wants to turn these wise men into his bloodhounds to track down the child so that he then might come and destroy the child. But God intervenes. He warns them in a dream. He says, do not return to Herod in Jerusalem. So they go home another way. The third scene. Well, let me just say that fulfills the prophecy from Micah 5. That Messiah would come from Bethlehem, a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Without that, without what we read, that prophecy would not have been fulfilled. Oh, he would have been born in Bethlehem. He also would have been killed in Bethlehem. We come to the third cameo then, and the fourth cameos, and they're really linked as a pair. But in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, we have disaster averted. An angel of the Lord directs Joseph to save the life of Jesus by fleeing with his family to Egypt so that Herod cannot reach him. And thus was fulfilled what the Lord spoke by the prophet. Matthew says, out of Egypt I called my son. It's a story of survival. Of survival. And then in verses 16 and 18 of chapter 2, disaster isn't averted. It falls actually on Bethlehem as Herod orders all young boys, two years of age and younger, to be slaughtered. You say, how horrible that is. Of course it was horrible. Yet even here, thus was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lament. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. This is Matthew quoting from Jeremiah chapter 31. And then finally, there's the fifth cameo with these three threads going through it. 19 to 23, here we have caution against pending disaster. After Herod dies, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream and he tells him to return to Israel because Herod is dead. Herod the Great is dead. But when Joseph learns that Herod's son, Archelaus, is now reigning over Judah, he's afraid to return to Judah, but yet that's his home. But he's warned in a dream to withdraw to the district of Galilee, an obscure area, and he settles in the obscure town of Nazareth so that what was spoken through the prophets, Matthew says, might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. You see these three threads that run throughout? Isn't it interesting? This notion of disaster, of divine intervention to prevent disaster, and then of the certainty that God was fulfilling his word. Prophecy is fulfilled. So where you look at Luke's account and it's full of praise and joy and gratitude and, and, and peace at the news of Jesus' birth, Matthew's account is full of misunderstanding and suspicion and rejection and fleeing from danger and even murder. 
What a contrast. In Luke's account, Jesus' birth brings peace. In Matthew's account, Jesus' birth disturbs peace. In Luke's account, the family brings him to Jerusalem. In Matthew's account, his family flees to get as far away from Jerusalem as they possibly can. And beyond announcing that Jesus' conception is, is, uh, is in a virgin through the Holy Spirit, Luke and Matthew also diverge from there in their telling of the roles of the angels. In Luke's account, the angels rejoice, they draw attention to the child, they invite people to come and visit him and see the child, they direct the shepherds to the child. But in Matthew's account, the angels serve to warn against threats to Jesus and repeatedly direct Jesus to keep Jesus obscure, uh, repeatedly direct Joseph to keep Jesus obscure for his own protection, first by flying to, fleeing to Egypt and then by settling in Galilee. There's one other distinct feature in Matthew's account. And that other distinct feature is Herod. You know, in these verses that Matthew wrote, Jesus is named four times. Joseph is named by name six times. Herod is named nine times. When God's son was born, the Antichrist appeared in the person of Herod. Think with me for a minute, the Apostle John and First John. Remember what he says? You've heard that Antichrist is coming. Even now I say many Antichrists have entered into the world. This is the rise of Antichrist in response to the birth of our Savior. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world is at war from the beginning. And it seems like the odds are stacked against the Holy Family. Because of demonized pride and self-interest, even Jerusalem, the city of peace and hope, the city of faith and worship, has become a zone of treachery. Even the temple, that was so celebrated, was the work of Herod. And if there's reference in Luke to Caesar, Roman Caesar, this emperor, ordering a census, if that's the counterpart to Herod, in some way in Matthew. It's very mild indeed. It's very mild indeed. The Antichrist in the story is in Matthew, and it is Herod. You know, Greek Christians live in this world with two different mindsets because really we're living in two worlds at the same time. We're living in two kingdoms at the same time. For you as a Christian, if you're a Christian today, there's hope and peace and comfort in Christ. At the same time, you're experiencing that. You're living in a world that is full of disturbance and despair and antagonism and threat and violence. And not just generalized, although that is the case, but also particularized toward Christians, Christianity. You know, I want to just make a comment today. I, I saw the slide as we came in. Um, for, the, uh, for the prelude, before the service began. And I know a lot of you do come in just as the service begins, or you come, and, and, and uh, some come in late, and I'm not here to torment you, but I do want to say you really do miss something when you don't come in uh, ahead of time to quiet your heart, listen to the music, and, uh, and, and, and prepare yourself for worship. I mean, you're just, you're missing out. You really are. But there was a slide up there of Adnan Santu 
who heads the Pakistan Sunday School Ministry. And in 2019, he is on our missions budget, and uh, it's a wonderful thing. But it reminds me of the fact that in the last couple of weeks I was with Adnan, and uh, we were talking about the situation in Pakistan, and this amazing irony at this time of year. And the irony is that as the Christians ramp up, you know, for worship and all kinds of public worship services around the country, um, it is also, and, and that's joy and happiness and celebration and worship of Christ's birth, there's also tremendous uh, fear and misgiving. You may remember last year, uh, one of the churches was attacked, a number of Christians were slaughtered during Christmas time, and that fear is multiplied this year. And it's multiplied this year because of Asiya Bibi and her situation. Asiya is a Roman Catholic, she's a Christian woman, she's been in prison for violating the blasphemy law, for saying something negative about Muhammad. She was in prison for nine years. She's a mother of three children. She hasn't seen them in nine years. I can't imagine what a Pakistani prison for a Christian woman must be like. But the Supreme Court recently in Pakistan overturned that decision and said, no, she did not commit blasphemy. But the radical clerics are determined to have her murdered, to have her hung, to have her killed. And so the prime minister of Pakistan had decided that he would, uh, yes, she's, she's not guilty, but he's not letting her free either. And they're not letting her out of the country either. And the great fear and the tension is that there will be reprisals against the Christians this year because Asiya Bibi has not been murdered. That is the situation in Pakistan. The Christians in Pakistan are living in two worlds. They're living in two kingdoms. And those two kingdoms are going to be so present and so evident this Christian, Christian Christmas season so I beg you, really, please pray for the Christians in Pakistan. Even as they worship, they're in tremendous danger. And there's no security physically, guards, armed guards, and so forth, that they could hire that could, that could stop a suicide bomber. Unless God were really working. I mean, you know, miraculously. But this is the two-world the two idea. We live in the same worlds, two worlds, but the dangers that we face are not as immediate as my brother uh, Adnan and others in Pakistan. Honestly, you know, leave the headlines aside. We experience the influence of both these kingdoms personally in our lives. We experience them in our spirits. We experience them in uh, the events of our lives. We live in the world that is passing away, and thank God this world is passing away. Honestly. And we live in a world that can never pass away. The kingdom of God's righteousness and peace forever. And sometimes it does feel like the fight is unfair because evil has the advantage. But the birth of Jesus and the telling and Matthew's telling of the story confirms and tells us that the fight is completely unfair, but for exactly the opposite reason. If God is for you, who can stand against you? In their pride and their presumption, the wicked assume that if they deny God, then his influence has been eliminated. That if they deny God, his influence is eliminated. It's like he doesn't exist if they say he doesn't exist. Nothing could be further from the truth. And God laughs in heaven, Psalm says. He laughs in heaven at his adversaries, the royals, the kings, the powerful forces of earth, the oppressors of the earth. He laughs and scoffs at them when they think this way. Nothing could be further than the truth. Matthew's telling us of this story is really a great 
illustration of what John wrote about Jesus coming into the world. He came to his own, but his own received him not. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not, did not, cannot overcome it. One other thing I want to point out to you this morning is the hero of the story. The hero of the story in Matthew is clearly Joseph. You say, well, why is Joseph the hero? He's not particularly insightful. He's not particularly clever. Um, He doesn't sing any great songs like Mary did. He's not a strategist. He's not eloquent. At least I don't think we record, I don't think there's any quote from Joseph in that account. I'd have to double check to make sure, but I don't remember any quote from Joseph. He has no power. So why is Joseph a hero? Ah, Joseph is a hero because God made him a hero. Because God made him a hero. The Lord supplies him with all that he lacks. When he lacks resolve, he gives him resolve. When he lacks insight, he gives him insight. Though he lacks cleverness, God gives him. God makes him a hero. And in himself, by the grace of God, but in himself, what is Joseph? Joseph is simply faithful. He's simply faithful. And a person who is simply faithful, honestly, the pure in heart, they'll see God. A person who is simply faithful and yields to God, God greatly uses that person. God greatly uses each one of you. What is it that Micah says? He has told you, old man, in this world of such turmoil, chaos, so many Herods, he has told you, old man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. You can rest assured that he is fulfilling his word. Rest assured and he will help you. So it seems to me that as I look this year and have studied Matthew's account, comparing it with Luke's account, it's in taking the Christmas lesson in Matthew's account to heart, this wonderful lesson from Matthew to heart, that we can really, uh, that we are freed and really can celebrate the birth of Christ as Luke leads us to do without the encumbrances of fear and anxiety that the world would subject us to. It is true for you because it was true of Jesus. And he's our Savior. If God is for you, who can be against you? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for this account. Um, it's true, and we need to hear it today. And I pray that you'd be with us in all these weeks that we're looking at Matthew's gospel together and you'd help us look at Matthew with uh, new eyes, and maybe some new ways. And we could really take to heart the beautiful message of the text. Um, it may not be as sparkly, it's not, but boy, do we need it. It is profound. And I pray that you'd help us all to worship you, dear Father, And certainly your son, the Lord Jesus, even as those who had eyes to see, worshipped him that first Christmas.
Amen.